Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast, where we are dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and I am bummed. I was hoping to feature a particular radio play that I have been searching for for years entitled Alter Ego, which starred the great Betty Davis. This radio play was featured on Lights Out, and I've heard so many stories pertaining to this particular recording. First story I heard was the censors heard this during a rehearsal, so it never aired. But then I've also heard that the episode did air, but it caused so much controversy, it never went on the airwaves again. So you can imagine how difficult it has been trying to find a copy of this show. Being that I'm now somewhat intertwined, if you will, with social media and the internet, I wound up um, visiting several old-time radio blogs as well as forums and just inquired if anyone knew of platforms that may have had this radio play to download. And I actually received a response last month. A gentleman sent me an email with a link and I was ecstatic. Just to find out, it was nothing more than a YouTube video of a few actors, amateur at best, reading off of the script. I mean, that's like buying tickets for an Adele concert, going there, and Miley Cyrus walks out on stage. Disappointing. But what can you do? So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two programs featured tonight are Murder by Experts and Fear on Four. Murder by Experts was a radio mystery drama which began in June 1949 and ended in December 1951 after a total of 130 episodes. It had two hosts, the first being John Dixon Carr, the second, Brett Hollywood, Holiday, excuse me. It was created by Robert Arthur and writer David Cogan. Now, Cogan wrote scripts for Mysterious Traveler, Nick Carter, Master Detective, The Sealed Book, and much more. The program featured stories from well-known writers at the time and was chosen by, as they called them, guest experts, who were also respected writers and translators within the uh, detective-slash-mystery fiction realm, such as Lawrence Blockman, Craig Rice, Bruno Fisher, etc. In 1950, Murder by Experts won the prestigious Edgar Award for Best Radio Drama. Now, for those who are not familiar with the Edgar Award, it's named after celebrated writer Edgar Allan Poe and is given every year to the best in mystery fiction as well as nonfiction, TV, film, as well as theater. The radio play tonight is entitled Summer Heat, and I am so excited for you all to hear this. Talk about a surprise ending. Now, this episode was broadcasted on June 13th, 1949. And I will state again, I love this radio play. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Summer Heat. Murder by Experts. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Murder by Experts with your host and narrator, Mr. John Dixon Carr, world-famous mystery novelist and author of the recently published bestseller, The Life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
This is John Dixon Carr. Each evening at this time, Murder by Experts brings you a story of crime and mystery which has been chosen for your approval by one of the world's leading detective writers. Those experts who are themselves masters of the art of murder and can hold tensity at its highest. Tonight's guest expert is Mr. Hugh Pentecost, author of many memorable thrillers, who has selected a story by a young newcomer you'll do well to watch, Andrew Evans. Be very careful as you listen, for, as Mr. Pentecost says of this thriller, the story has not only a twist, but an unforeseen double twist, which takes one completely by surprise. And now we present Summer Heat. Look now at the old elms, the ivy-covered buildings on the campus of a small Midwestern university. It's a fine June afternoon when you hear laughter and the greetings of the reunion of the class of 36. Twelve years have passed, but none of the members of the class seems much older to each other. There's the dark-haired Paul Baxter wandering rather strangely. There are two of his old friends, prosperous now, judged by their clothes, and boisterous in greeting. Paul! Paul Baxter! You old rascal! It's sure good to see you again. (laughs) Hello, Steve. Bert, this is a surprise. Uh, Why don't you have a right to us, Paul? You had our addresses. Why, sure. That's no way to treat old classmates. Just think, 12 years. Oh, they sure have gone fast. Too fast to suit me. (laughs) Say, Paul, you've turned awful gray for only 33. Well, he always did take things too seriously. I suppose by now, Paul, you're one of the biggest lawyers in the state, huh? How's Marcia? Yeah, you were all set to marry her after graduation, remember? Yes, and you were going to become her father's junior law partner. Oh, you sure had a sweet setup there. Well, uh... (laughs) Things worked out a, a little differently. You see, that party we had graduation night. Do you remember it? Remember it? <laughs> How can we forget it? <laughs> oh, that was a real blowout. How <laughs> were you tight, Paul? <laughs> well, you know, that party uh, sort of changed my whole life. Changed your life? Well, how? Well, I, uh, I, I don't remember much about the party itself. I... I guess I had too many drinks. In fact, I I don't remember anything until I woke up the next morning. I could hear old Trinity ringing. I awoke to find myself on the couch in my living room. It was noon. The room was hot. Stiflingly hot. I remembered I had a date with Marcia and her father at one o'clock. I got to my feet... My head ached. There were heat waves before my eyes. Feeling sick, I staggered toward my bedroom, and then I saw him. A man, asleep on my bed, his back to me. For a moment, I stood there, trying to remember if someone had come home from the party with me. But the night before was a total blank. I crossed to the bed, bent over, shook his shoulder. Hey, fella. Hey, it's noon. Wake up. Come on, wake up. I shook him. He had flopped over and looked up at me with staring eyes. He was dead. And there was a knife in his chest. My hunting knife. I stood stunned, staring down at the body on my bed. The dead man was an utter stranger to me. He was neatly dressed in old clothes. And my knife, my knife was in his heart. I killed him. I couldn't remember when or how or why, but I'd killed him. Frantically, I I tried to remember what had happened. Was he a panhandler? Someone I'd met on the street and drunkenly brought home with me? I didn't know. I couldn't remember. As I stood there, trying to get a grip on myself, I suddenly realized there was someone at the door. 
Instinctively, I walked into the living room and towards the door. Just as I was about to open it, I realized the danger of letting anyone into the apartment. I put my ear against the door and listened. I heard voices. Yours, Steve. And yours, Bert. <laughs> hey, Paul, open up. We want to say goodbye. Come on, Paul. Wake up, will you? We're leaving for California in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess old Paul isn't in. Yeah. I wonder how he felt when he woke up. <laughs> Boy, what a head he must have had. <laughs> Well, I sure hate to leave without saying goodbye. Well, he has our California address. He yeah. can write to us. Come on, or we'll miss that train. And they were both gone. And I dared to breathe again. I tried to think calmly. Figure out what to do. I knew I should call the police, but they... They might charge me with murder. And what defense could I offer? I thought of Marcia. The slightest scandal and everything would be off. Our marriage, my job, my future. I couldn't call the police. I couldn't call them and sacrifice everything I'd worked for. Somehow I had to get the body out of my apartment, get rid of it before it was found. Then it came to me. My car was in the basement, garage. The dumbwaiter in the kitchen led down to the basement. I could put the dead man in the dumbwaiter, lower him to the basement, get him in my car, and then... Mr. Paul! Oh, Mr. Paul! It was Jenny, the cleaning woman. She'd let herself in with a key... I hurried into the living room, closing the bedroom door behind me. Oh, there you are. A fine time for a rising young lawyer to be getting up. Oh, hello, Jenny. I, I, I guess I overslept. I was at a party last night. A party, was it? Everyone on the campus is talking about it. And the complaints. Well, now, step aside and let me into that bedroom. i got to start cleaning. Jenny, can't you come back later and do the place? No, I can't. Now get out of my way. Jenny, wait. I don't want you to clean up yet. Paul, what's wrong? Wait. Why are you blocking the door like that? Well, the truth of the matter is, one of the boys had a bit too much last night, and he's in my bedroom slipping it off. Oh, well, get him out of there. Take him to a Turkish bath. Turkish bath. Oh, yes, that's that's a good idea. Look, Jenny, just give me half an hour to get him dressed and out of here. Then you can come back and clean up. A half hour, nothing. I'll give you exactly five minutes. All right, Jenny, I'll have him out of here by then. You'd better. She was gone, and I had five minutes, just five minutes. I went into the bedroom and quickly went through the dead man's pockets. They were empty. There was no identification in them. The thin, pinched face told me he was a nobody, a derelict, someone who might never be missed. As I was about to lift him off the bed, the phone rang. A shrill ring filled the room. Hello? Hello, darling. Marcia. How was your stag party last night? Did you miss me? Miss you? <laughs> you sound as though you have a dreadful hangover. Hangover? Oh, yes. Oh, excuse me a minute, Marcia. There's someone at the door. Yes? I'll be coming in to clean your room in another minute, Paul. Jenny. So get your friends out of there. Oh, yes, Jenny, yes. Just give me another minute and we'll be out of here. Marcia, I, I can't talk to you any longer. I'm in a hurry. Then you haven't forgotten your appointment with Father and myself at one o'clock. No, no, no. I may be a little late, but I'll be there. Paul, you mustn't be late. I've told you over and over what a stickler father is for punctuality. He can't stand people who are late for appointments. Well, you recall how furious he was when you didn't I know, Marcia, but I... You have 45 minutes to shave, shower, and dress. That's plenty of time. And, Paul, wear your gray flannel suit with a blue knitted tie and be sure you're there. Yes, Marcia, yes, but I've got to hang up. Jenny will be coming back any minute that I... Well, what if she is? Now, darling, you haven't forgotten what we discussed yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon? I know Father's brusque and inclined to bully people, but don't let it upset you. After all, it's our future he's... Marcia, I can't talk any longer. I've got to hang up. Jenny will be back. I've only seconds left. What in the world are you talking about? Now, when Father asks... Marcia, I've got to hang up. I've got to. Goodbye. I hung up the phone and wiped the sweat running down my face. It took only a moment to lift him off the bed, carry him into the kitchen, pull the dumbwaiter up and put his body into it. I closed the door to the dumbwaiter, ran out of the apartment and started down the stairs to the basement. I got down to the basement to find Ben, the janitor, leisurely pulling on the dumbwaiter rope. Ben! Oh, Ben! Oh, love, Paul. If it's your car you're after, it's there by the door, all washed like you asked. Thanks, but Ben, stop a minute, will you? I, I want you to do something for me. Sure, Paul, just as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter... Will you stop blowing that dumbwaiter? Stop it! Here! Hi. 
What's wrong with you? You're acting mighty strange. I... I'm sorry. I, I shot it like that, Ben. It's just that... There, there's a package up in my apartment that I'd like you to mail right away. There's a dollar in it for you. All right. But there ain't no need to rush. Today's Sunday. The post office is closed. Closed? Sure. Say, what's the matter with you anyway? Must be the heat. Uh, something awful heavy on this somewhere. Wait, wait, wait a minute. There's something else. How's that? Stop a minute, will you? How can I talk to you about your lowering that dumb waiter? Well, go ahead. I can hear everything you're saying. That good, that throat, that throat, you hear Hey, you going crazy or something? I've half a mind to call a super and tell him what... No, 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 don't do that. I... I... Ben, uh, up in my apartment, there's a bottle. Bottle? Yes, I, I brought it home last night. It's... It's half full. I wanted you to have it for cleaning the car. Oh, thanks. I sure appreciate that, Paul. Uh, I'll go up and get it as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter. It's almost down now. But Ben, Jenny just went in to clean. You know how she feels about drinking? Huh, Jenny? Jumping grasshoppers. Why didn't you say so? That woman will pour it all down the drain if I don't get there first. As soon as Ben disappeared up the stairs, I pulled the dumbwaiter the rest of the way down, opened the door, and he fell into my arms. Slinging the body over my shoulder, I staggered with it to my car and swiftly dropped him on the floor in the back. It was an old touring car. The top was long since gone. To hide the body from view, I, I covered it with an old blanket. A moment later, I started the motor and rolled smoothly out of the basement and into the driveway. As I did, I heard Ben shouting to me from my window. Oh, hey, Paul, wait a minute. I got something. I pretended not to hear Ben calling. Instead, I stepped on the gas. almost proud of myself as I drove past the campus. I was in trouble, but I was thinking fast, as a good lawyer should. I'd already decided I'd have to get rid of him by dumping him into the river. As I came to Main Street, driving neither too fast nor too slow, I turned left toward the river. There was very little traffic, and I was just about to speed up when behind me I heard a whistle blowing. It was Dugan, the town's only traffic cop, and he was blowing for me to stop. There was nothing to do but pull over to the curb. As Dugan hurried up to me, I realized I'd driven through a red light. Hello, Dugan. Never mind that hello, Dugan stuff. What's the matter, you colorblind? I, I, I'm sorry, Dugan. I, I just didn't notice the light. You just didn't notice the light. That's fine. Think you and me had better take a ride over to Justice Miller. Oh, look, don't run me in, Dugan. It won't happen again. That's what all you college cut-ups say. Next thing you know, you'll be telling me... What do you got there in the back... Underneath that blanket. Under the blanket? You heard me. What's under it? Why, uh, that's Roy Hamilton, one of my classmates. Yeah, well, what's he lying on the floor under a blanket on a hot day like this for? Last night at our, our farewell shindig, Roy had a few too many. He's still out. I'm taking him home. Where does he live? At Mrs. Randolph's boarding house. What are you handing me? That's in the other direction. Yes, yes, I know, but first I'm taking him to the Turkish bath on Elm Street. Yeah, well, by the time you get him there, the poor guy will be dead. Ain't you got no sense? What do you mean? Look at the way you got the blanket over his head, and then this heat, too. I better pull the blanket off his face so he can breathe. No, no. I, I mean, I covered his face on purpose. Suppose Dean Richards or somebody saw Roy like this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just the same, I better... I better... Uh, Constable, Constable, could I see you for a minute? I'll be right with you, Jensen. Johnson. Where were we, Baxter? Oh, yeah, the guy in the back. He'll smother to death if we don't move the... Well, it's important. I've got to see you right away. I'm coming, I'm coming. I won't run you in this time, Baxter, but from now on, stay awake when you're driving. I will, Dugan. And for Pete's sake, pull the blanket off that guy's head. Take it easy, Jensen. I'm coming. I stepped on the gas. I muttered a prayer of thanks for old Johnson, the janitor of the medical school building, who had called Dugan just as he was reaching for the blanket that covered my passenger. It was a few minutes after one as I drove out of town. I could picture Marcia's father fuming in my lateness. The sun was scorching in my open car as I drove along River Road, looking for a place to hide the body. I needed one where there were trees to hide me.
The hours that followed were like a nightmare. The heat was stifling, and I could feel my hand shaking on the wheel from nervous tension. I drove and drove and drove, looking for a place to get rid of the body. But the whole countryside seemed to be swarming with people, families picnicking, Boy Scouts camping, kids in swimming, couples in parked cars. No matter where I turned, there was always someone in sight. Little spots danced before my eyes. Waves of faintness swept over me. My hand began to ache in my head, too. Unbearably. It was already long after three. I was late for my date with Marcia and her father. That didn't matter. Nothing mattered but to get rid of the body in the back of the car. I had to get rid of it. I had to. I drove, mile after mile, turning from one road to another, searching endlessly for a safe place to stop. Then I realized I was running out of gas. I saw a gas station ahead, and I decided to stop there. It was a risk, but I had to take it. Five gallons. Want me to check your oil? No, no, thanks. Uh, how much? It's a dollar fifteen. Oh, boy, it's hot, isn't it? Yes, it's hot, all right. Here you are. That's one fifteen out of five. Now get your change. Hey, uh, this uh, rear tire looks a little flat. That's all right. You want me to check it? Won't take but a minute. It's all right, I tell you. Okay, mister, just you say, uh, uh, your rear door is open. I better shut that for you. Leave that door alone. Ah, oh, but uh, you don't want to drive along with your rear door open. That's funny. There's uh, something in the car jamming it. I better have a... Leave that door alone and get my train. But you... All right, mister. Just as you say. Get your change. He hurried into the station. I looked in the back of the car and saw what had kept the door from closing was a hand, his hand sticking out from under the blanket. The attendant had seen it. He would be phoning the police. I drove faster and faster. The police would be on the lookout for me now. My whole future depended on what I did in the next few minutes. And then it came to me. In one brief moment, it came to me. The perfect way to get rid of the body was so simple, so perfect, that I laughed aloud with relief. <laughs> a half hour later, I was parked in an alley behind one of the university buildings. It was Sunday, and the place was deserted. Despite my fatigue and aching head, it took me but a moment to carry the body into the basement of the medical building and down the corridor to the basement room where the bodies for the dissecting classes were kept. <laughs> Where does a wise man hide a leaf? In a forest. Where does a wise man hide a body? In the dissecting room. The room was big and cool and dimly lit. The far end was a long metal tank. I reached the tank and lowered him to the stone floor beside it. I had only to open the tank, slip him inside and leave. I reached for the lid of the preserving tank and was about to open it. When I heard a voice. Hey! Hey, who's in there? It was Johnson, the janitor. I quickly dropped behind the tank and waited, holding my breath. I heard you. Stop hiding and come out. I know you're here. I just saw your car through the window. You better come out if you know what's good for you. He'd seen my car. He knew I was in the room. But if I kept my head, there was a chance, just a chance... All right, Johnson. Here I am. Baxter, eh? So it's you, is it? You're the one Johnson, who... wait a minute. Let me explain. Explain, huh? After last night, I'm not listening to any fancy stories. I'm the one who gets blamed when... What's that on the floor behind you there? On the floor? What? Why, nothing, Johnson. Do you think I'm blind or something? Step aside and let me see what... Why, it's a body. Yes. It's a body. 
So that's it. I thought you were trying to steal one. Instead, you were bringing it. Yes, I was bringing it. And just what were you going to do with that gentleman on the floor? Put him back in the tank with the rest? Yes, that's right. I I thought he might not be noticed. As if I wouldn't have known. Well, go on. Call the cops. Let's get it over with. Uh, All right, Baxter. Of course, uh, I don't have to call the cops. Nobody knows about this but you and me. What? What do you mean? Well, I was going to make a report, but uh, this way there's no harm done, so I might be able to overlook the whole thing if I was persuaded properly. You might overlook it? Eh? Uh, mm-hmm, that's right. You just leave this fella to me and there's no fuss because nobody's the wiser. You... You do that? You'd keep your mouth shut? I guess I could be persuaded to. How much? Hey. Well, uh, suppose we say $50. $50? That uh, isn't much considering what would happen if I reported you. Oh, no, no, it isn't $50. That's... It's very cheap to help me cover up a murder. Murder? Ah, more of your jokes. I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about putting number 37 here back in his proper place. Number 37? Yes, 37. He just came in yesterday from the county poor farm. And last night he disappeared. Stolen by you and your drunken friends. And dressed up for a joke. Well, I don't like jokes like that. I drove downtown a while back to tell Dugan the constable about it, but... Well, I didn't tell him anything. It it would mean trouble for me for being asleep on the job. Number 37. He was stolen from here last night. Aye, that's what I said. As long as you've brought him back, there's no harm done. That's why I'm willing to keep it quiet. Then... Then I didn't kill him. It was just a joke somebody played on me. Just a practical joke. Here, 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 here. What's wrong with you? It's a joke. It's a very good joke on me. This whole afternoon driving. Driving in the heat, trying to get rid of him. It was just a joke. A joke. For goodness sakes, he's fainted. That's the story of what happened the day after our graduation party 12 years ago. When I came to, I was in the college hospital. I'd been unconscious a week. They they said it was just a slight breakdown brought on by sunstroke. I was all right after a while, but somehow I, I wasn't interested in law anymore. Marcia and I didn't get married, and I didn't become her father's junior law partner. Good Lord, Paul. We never knew any of this. Gosh, Paul, I can't tell you how sorry I am. We never dreamed our gag would turn out like that. Your gag? Why, sure. See, after the party broke up that night, we were feeling pretty high, and... Well, it was a crazy idea, but we thought it would be funny to steal a cadaver from the medical college and leave it in your room with with your knife in it. Then it was you? The two of you? Well, yes, Paul. Gosh, I feel terrible about this, but... Well, that day we left, we came up to your apartment to tell you about a little joke. Uh, only you weren't in. We had to rush for our train, but we phoned from the station... Ben, the janitor, answered, and we told him to explain about the cadaver. I I heard him calling, but I I didn't stop. Paul, will you ever be able to forgive us for what happened? Forgive you? Forgive you? No! No, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you, do you hear? Kill you! Hey, wait a minute. No! Get him! Bert! Bert, help me! Paul! Paul, let him go! He's choking me! Help me! Kill you! Here he is, men. Grab him. Quick, grab him. 
sure sorry this happened. You see, he slipped away from the hospital this afternoon. We figured he'd head this way. The hospital? Yes. Poor fellow had a bad breakdown just after he graduated 12 years ago. He's been locked up ever since. Locked up? Yeah. He's always been perfectly harmless, though. He just went around all the time looking for a place to hide something. This is the first time he ever got violent. I can't figure out what came over him. And so the curtain falls on Summer Heat, which was chosen by guest expert Hugh Pentecost, whose latest thriller, Where the Snow Was Red, will be published next month. We welcome your comments on tonight's story. All letters should be addressed to Murder by Experts, Care of Mutual Broadcasting System, New York 18, New York. Next week at this time, Murder by Experts brings you the story of a woman who pitted her wits against death. A story selected for your approval by Brett Halliday, creator of the rough, tough detective known as Mike Shane. Until then, this is your host, John Dixon Carr, saying good night. In our cast were Lawson Zerbe, Bryna Rayburn, Ian Martin, Cameron Andrews, Bill Zuckert, and Frank Behrens. Summer Heat by Andrew Evans was adapted for radio by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan. Original music was composed by Richard LePage. The orchestra was conducted by Emerson Buckley. Murder by Experts is produced and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan. All characters in this story were fictitious, and any resemblance to the names of actual persons was purely coincidental. Bill Tonkin speaking. This is the world's largest network serving more than 500 radio stations, the Mutual Broadcasting System. Wow. Talk about a college prank going completely left. Eesh. Truthfully, the first time... I heard Summer Heat. I literally thought the guy was having a dream or was hallucinating. I really did not expect that ending. Ugh, love it. Now on to our next program, which I discovered just a few weeks ago. Shout out to the Late Late Horror Show on YouTube. Fear on 4 is a continuation of a BBC horror radio show called Appointment with Fear which came out in 1943 and ended in 1955. This series has been resurrected, a play on words, four more times. In 1949, 1976, 1988, and 2009. It was created by John Dixon Carr. Now, if you remember when I was speaking about Murder by Experts, I mentioned his name. He was the first host. The show was literally a combination of adaptations of classic horror stories as well as original material. Fear on 4 was the fourth revival of Appointment with Fear. And it debuted on the BBC in 1988 and ended in 1992. The radio play tonight is called The Judge's House and this adapted from the short story by Bram Stoker. Now, if you're not familiar with Bram Stoker, I'm sure 
you have heard of a very popular character he created. A pale guy with jacked up teeth. I think they called him Dracula. The Judge's House originally broadcasted on April 9th in 1989. So sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to The Judge's House. Welcome once more, ladies and gentlemen. And this week, it's story number 13. An unlucky number, of course, especially for me, as this is my last story, but only for a while. I hope. This particular story was told to me by Bram Stoker, the man who created that other man in black, the gaunt, insatiable Dracula. I like to think that the immortal Count himself enjoys listening to Fear on Four, accompanied by his three shrouded daughters, the wolves howling outside, the rats scurrying in the blood-soaked corners of the room. In fact, rats feature very much in the story I'm about to tell, the story of the judge's house. It's an old and rambling house, in the Jacobean style, with heavy gables and windows unusually small and set higher than customary in such houses. It is surrounded, entirely surrounded, with a high brick wall, massively built. Indeed, it looks like a fortification, and this impression is deepened by the presence on the roof of a small round tower of weathered stone which houses an old alarm bell. The house is empty. It has been empty for many, many years. All about it there hangs an air of desolation. It stands some distance from the little town of Benchurch in the midst of a small tract of weedy parkland. But all these things, the absolute, the unutterable loneliness of the place only makes it seem the more desirable to Malcolm Malcolmson this year for his final examinations. He needs solitude and that is something he will certainly find in this house of all houses. Mr. Carnford? The same, sir. Carnford, Carnford and Frogmore estate agents at your service. Uh, I'm the Comfort in the middle. How do you do? My name is Malcolmson. Uh, Malcolm Malcolmson. You will have had my letter? Mr. Malcolmson. Oh, to be sure. Ah. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, you uh, wanted to rent the old house along the Rivington Road. Yes, yes. I gather it's available. Oh, certainly. Eunice will be only too delighted, I'm sure. It's a lonely old place. Of course, however... That's exactly I... why I wanted, Mr. Comfort. I think I told you I'm reading for the mathematical tripod. Of course. Yes, indeed. You wanted peace and quiet. <laughs> Most necessary. Yes. If it's solitude you want, you'll find it in the judge's house. Oh, yes. The judge's house, you say? Uh, that's what they all call the old house hereabouts. Used to belong to some old judge. Terrible man, terrible. <laughs> Long time ago, of course. A couple of hundred years at the very least. I dare say he'll hardly trouble me if it was as long ago as all that, Mr. Carnford, no matter how terrible he was. Why was he terrible, by the way? Oh, a strange kind of fellow. Always getting people hanged. Very harsh. Had a kind of obsession, you know. Very cruel. As a matter of fact, Mr. Malcolmson... I might as well tell you myself before the locals gossip it out of all perspective to you. Uh, there's a, a sort of, well, a kind of something, a kind of prejudice, you see. What kind of prejudice? Oh, nothing much. You know the sort of thing. It's been empty so long, you see, and it's so old and desolate. You know the kind of thing that grows up around places like that. To tell you the truth, that's why we're willing to let you have the place so cheaply, you see. If only to accustom the people round here to seeing it inhabited. They won't see much sign of its being inhabited, Mr. Carnford. 
I'll be too busy at my books to show myself. To be sure. <laughs> to be sure. And I suppose that as a scholar, you are the kind to worry about these absurd prejudices. My dear Mr. Carnford, for the next few weeks, I shall be far too concerned with the mysteries of elliptical functions and marmonical progressions to worry about any other kind of mysteries. Now, uh, if I agree to pay you, say, um, oh, um, three months' rent in advance? Uh, that would be excellent. Ah, then I could move in straight away, do you think? Uh, I'm anxious to start work as soon as I can. You shall have the key this moment. Oh, and could you perhaps recommend some local woman who could come in to keep the place clean for me and do some simple meals? I have the very woman you want, Mr. Malcolmson. She was in here only yesterday asking if I could find any work for her. Uh, let me see now. Um, I have a note of her name somewhere. Oh, and Mr. Comfort, I must get someone to bring my things up from the station. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, try Tovey and Sprott in Bridge Street. They're the best, I think. Right. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, Mrs. Dempster. Uh, that's it, Mrs. Dempster. Mrs. Dempster? Yes, sir? Uh, Mrs. Dempster, I've decided to have most of my things in the dining room here. Yes, sir. It's big enough, you see, and uh, I can work at the table here beside the fire. And my little folding bed will fit nicely into that corner over there. Yes, sir. But it's not a very cheerful room for you, sir. Oh, I dare say I shall manage, Mrs. Dempster. I'll be too busy to notice if it's cheerful or not. Yes, sir. All them old portraits and things on the walls is pretty dull for a young man like yourself, sir. There ain't none of them what you'd say handsome, sir. <laughs> better and better. I wouldn't want my mind distracted by a gallery of young nudes, for instance. <laughs> no, sir. I suppose not. You know what that is, sir, of course. Mm, some kind of bell rope from the way it's hanging. Yes, sir. That there alarm bell on the roof, sir. Runs right up, it does, through the ceiling. They do say... Well, never mind, it's only gossip. I remember that old bell ringing once, sir. Caused a dreadful stir in Benchurch. Dreadful. Ringing away. You mean, of its own accord? Oh, no, sir. There was folk living in the house in them days, sir. I reckon it were about fifty year ago, near enough. I was only a girl myself. Some young folk tried it on for a lark, I suppose. Well, I'm hardly likely to want to try any larks, Mrs. Dempster. You might need it for other things, sir. What, for instance? Well, some says one thing, some says another, sir. It ain't for me to tell tales. Still all the same, no kin of mine would sleep here of a night, sir, bell or no bell. There ain't nobody lived in his house for fifty years. Not since those young folk went away. And there's no telling why they did go away, sir. No, indeed, Mrs. Dempster. No telling. So perhaps you had better not tell me yourself, eh? Now, have I got everything, I wonder? A screen, sir. I reckon you'll need a screen. What for? Put round your bed. There's one upstairs. I'll fetch it down. It's very drafty in this big room. You'll need a screen... Oh, mind you, I wouldn't like a screen myself, with all kinds of things to put their heads round the sides and over the top to look at me. Mrs. Dempster, you're not afraid of ghosts, are you? Well, no, sir. At least maybe not what you'd call ghosts. <clears throat> there ain't really such things as ghosts, I always say. Ghosts is always something else than what folks think they are. <laughs> ghosts is creaky doors and rats and mice and beetles and such. Here, look at that old wainscot round the wall there. There's rats in plenty there, if you ask me. I dare say you'll hear them too, of a night. They won't disturb me, Mrs Dempster. No, sir. But it's different in the night. And if I was to have a screen round my bed in a room like this, with the thought of that old judge and his hangings and them rats all scampering... Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, sir, and that's a fact. Yes, I'm sure you wouldn't. Well, now, if you'd be good enough to bring me a kettle and some tea things, I can get to work straight away. I, I keep myself going with tea in the night time, you know, Mrs Dempster? Yes, sir. 
But don't sit up too late, sir. Not good for your health. I'll try, Mrs. Dempster. I promise you, I'll try. Oh, and you'll come in the morning to get some breakfast for me, say, half past eight? I will, sir. Well, I'll, I'll get your tea things in and leave mm. you to it, then. Yes, thank you, Mrs. Dempster. Oh, uh, just uh, one more thing before you go. Yeah. I meant to ask Mr. Comfort, this old judge that used to live here, what was his name? Well, to tell you the truth, sir, I don't rightly know. I did hear it once. Began with a J, if I mind right. Came here from the West Country to settle down for a bit, they do say. Had to lie low or something. He was that unpopular with his hangings. A terrible, cruel man, they say. The West Country? Oh, it, that wouldn't have went... been... Wait now, sir. I remember. Yes. Jeffers, that was it. No. No. Jeffries. Yes. I'm sure of it. Judge Jeffries, that was the name, sir. Judge Jeffries. Sir Malcolm Malcolmson, well pleased with the success of his plan to find solitude, settled down for his first night in the judge's house. With his books piled on the table, he put fresh wood on the fire, trimmed his oil lamp, and settled himself to a spell of hard work. He went on without a pause until about eleven o'clock, and then stopped to make himself a cup of tea. The rest was a great luxury to him, and he enjoyed it with a sense of voluptuous ease. The renewed fire leapt and sparkled, and threw strange shadows through the ancient gloomy room. He sipped his tea and reveled in the sense of his isolation. And then, only then, did he begin to notice the little rustling, whispering sound that was filling the air. God! Rats! Place is full of rats. Old Mrs. D was right. Surely they can't have been at it all the time I was reading. I must have noticed them. They're busy enough now, at any rate. <laughs> what was it the old soul said? Rats is ghosts, and ghosts is rats. <laughs> Well, I reckon it's just their way of welcoming a stranger. They've been lonely for too long. That's what it is. Uh, oh, don't worry, my small friends. Don't worry. I've come to keep you company now. <laughs> don't worry. He smiles to himself and picks up the green shaded oil lamp from the table. He goes round the room, wondering that so beautiful an old house had been so long neglected. The carving of the oak on the panels of the wainscot is magnificent. The old portraits above are fine and mellow, although most of them are too heavily covered in dust for him to be able to make out much detail. Here and there he sees some crack or hole that is blocked for a moment by the face of a rat its bright eyes glittering in the light. They seem most concentrated in numbers in the corner of the old room where the long, slender bell rope hangs down beside a great portrait, larger and more imposing than all the rest. He is looking for a chair to stand on to examine the bell rope more closely at the point where it enters the ceiling, the gathering place, as it seems, of the small, busy host of rats when he suddenly becomes aware that, just as quickly as it had begun, the noise all round him has stopped. He stays poised in his movement, disturbed unaccountably by the sudden quiet, and in an instant 
In spite of his self-possession, a tremor of uneasiness passes through him. There, on a great high-backed carved oak chair beside the fire, which in the interval has died a little, there, steadily regarding him with baleful, glowing eyes, is an enormous rat. He recovers himself immediately and makes as if to drive it away. It does not stir, but shows its great white teeth in anger, and its cruel eyes shine in the lamplight with an added vindictiveness. He seizes the poker and runs at it to kill it, but with a flashing glance that is the very essence of hate, it jumps on the floor, runs across the room, and scampers up the rope of the alarm bell to disappear behind the great portrait. Malcolmson stands in the silence, the poker in his hand, half ashamed of his fear, watching the rope still gently swaying. He shrugs and goes back to his table, and in a little while is so immersed in his studies again that the whole incident is forgotten. He works in the lamplit silence until dawn, and then at last, worn out, he goes to bed. Morning, sir. Breakfast. What? What's that? Oh, uh, it's you, Mrs. Dempster. Uh, good morning. I brought your breakfast mm. in, sir. It's nearly nine. I thought I wouldn't wait much longer. Nine o'clock? Good heavens, I had no idea. <clears throat> Thank you, Mrs. Dempster. Will you put the tray down there? Looks to me as if you was overdoing it a bit, sir. Real washed out you look. Was you working late? Late enough, I suppose. About five o'clock, I think. You wasn't worried by anything, I hope, sir. I mean, in the night. Oh, I was all right. You had the truth of it when you said the place was full of rats, Mrs. Dempster. They had a regular circus in here last night. Rats. I don't hold much with rats, sir. Dirty things. There was one wicked-looking old devil sat up in that old chair by the fire there. Then went running off the bell rope. I didn't much like the look of him. Better take care, sir. Maybe it wasn't only an old devil. Maybe it was the old devil. <laughs> Mrs. Dempster, I believe you're not as enlightened as I thought you were yesterday. I believe you think there might be things here, after all, in spite of what you said. Well, it's all very well for you young folk to laugh, sir. It's just I don't hold with nosing into things too much. There's things it's better not to laugh at, if you ask me. Anyway, if I was you, I'd get some rat poison. <clears throat> Though if it was the old devil, I dare say you wouldn't get rid of him with that. He won't worry me, Mrs. Dempster. Not when I have a good set of problems in thermodynamics to keep my mind busy. Oh, uh, by the way, there's something I want you to do for me today. Uh, you could fit it in during my walk this afternoon, perhaps. Anything you want, sir. What is it? Will you dust those old portraits? I want to have a good look at them. Especially that big one there, the one beside the bell rope. Will you do it? Yes, sir. Just as you say. If you want it, sir. If you really want it. Malcolmson rises and has his breakfast. Outside, the weather is damp and unpleasant, and so he passes the time in further study. In the afternoon, the skies clear a little, and he goes for a walk into Benchurch by way of taking exercise. He stays rather later than he'd intended, so it's after dark when he gets back to the house. Mrs. Dempster has gone, leaving a cold supper for him on a tray. He eats it hungrily, and once more settles himself down in the great dining room for a night of hard work. This time, the scampering of the little army of rats begins earlier and they disturb him more than they'd done the previous night. They scamper up and down and under and over. They squeak and scratch and gnaw. Getting bolder by degrees, they come out of their holes from the chinks and cracks and crannies in the wainscoting till their eyes, 
shine like small red lamps in the firelight. He rises to his feet and seizes the reading lamp from the table. There is a hasty scurrying sound, and the rats go scampering away and disappear. And again, as suddenly as it has begun, he discovers that the endless gnawing and squealing ceases, and he's all alone, in utter silence, his heart beating faster than normal, and as he draws a deep breath to steady himself, a long, strange thrill of fear goes through him. For the first time since Mrs. Dempster has dusted it, he's able to see, quite clearly in the lamplight, the great portrait that hangs on the wall beside the bell rope. It is the portrait of a judge, the judge, in his full robes of scarlet and ermine. The face is strong and merciless, evil and vindictive, with a dark, sensual mouth and a hooked nose like that of a bird of prey. Yet what disturbs the young man most is that the judge in the portrait is seated in a high-backed chair of carved oak beside a great stone fireplace, and behind the judge, hanging down from the ceiling, its end lying coiled on the floor, is a rope, a hangman's rope. The room in the portrait is the room in which he stands. The rope in the portrait is the bell rope. He had thought it unusually supple when first he'd seen it, the end of it worn and smooth, as if from much movement in a running noose. He swings round towards the fireplace to look at the actual counterpart of the chair in the portrait, and he recoils in such fear that the green-shaded lamp nearly falls from his hand. In the armchair, the judge's armchair, sits the enormous rat he had seen there the night before. And its eyes, as they regard him, have a peculiar brilliance. They glow with an unutterable malignance. He has seen those eyes before. They are the eyes... The identical eyes, small, cunning, intolerably evil, in the portrait above his head. For an instant he stands frozen. Then he leaps forward, his hand upraised, but the creature again forestalls him. With a sudden swift movement, it jumps from the chair and scuttles rapidly across the room. Then up the swaying bell rope into a jagged, dark hole in the corner of the canvas of the portrait. be working at my books for some reason. I'm unaccountably nervous and I'm unable to settle. To calm my mind, I've taken up my pen to write to you. I know I owe you a letter in any case. Outside, the wind has risen and seems to be growing always in strength. It is suddenly strangely cold of the great fire I've built. A few moments ago I had to take a neat brandy or I might have been unable to steady my hand to hold the pen at all. I think you know that I am not a particularly imaginative man. If anything, I can be blamed for always taking a materialistic view of things. Yet, as I sit here, in this ancient room, I am oppressed with a sense of evil. You did not tell me when you recommended this old house as the very place I was looking for to find peace and quiet that there were any dark associations attached to it. When I heard strange rumors concerning it, I paid no attention to them. Even now, I try to regard them as irrational superstitions. Yet an hour ago, less than an hour ago, I found myself in the grip of mortal terror. Indeed, it is to calm my nerves from the experience that I write to you now. The house here 
is infested with rats. Normally I'm not afraid of rats, indeed. At first I almost welcomed their scamperings as a little sound to keep me company in the night. But here, in this very room, I saw a rat that was bigger than any I've ever seen in my life before. And there was also a, a something all about it that I cannot express, but which seemed to me to be charged with evil. What impressed and terrified me most as I looked at it was that its eyes, red, dreadful eyes, were... And I must say it, however wild and strange it may seem, were human eyes. Recognizable human eyes. Above me here, as I sit at my table, is a portrait. And when I raise my own eyes to look at it, glow of the lamplight, a million little eyes regarding him. From every crack and cranny, unwinkingly they gaze. He sees small furry bodies gathered close in a circle all round him, on the high-backed chairs, on the frames of the pictures, clinging motionless along the very top of the bell rope itself. The bell rope is quickly laden with rats, yet his fear does not spring from their eyes. He does not only fear the rats, it is something else that he sees that freezes him to the spot. In the center of the great portrait above him, the portrait of the judge, is a huge, irregular patch of brown, naked canvas, as fresh as when it was stretched on the frame. The background is as before, but the figure, the central figure, has disappeared. The judge is no longer there. In the oaken chair, the chair on which had sat the monstrous red-eyed rat, sits now the judge himself. His robes of scarlet shine in the flicker of the firelight. On his head, above the evil eyes, a black cap. In his withered white hands is the supple end of the bell rope, the hangman's rope. And even as Malcolmson stares in a paralysis of fear, the monstrous, stooping figure rises, still smoothing the end of the rope in his fingers and forming it to a coil and then to a noose. And with his eyes a glow in a red flame of triumph, he advances towards the helpless figure of the student, his long, strong, scarlet arms stretched out to him. When the alarm bell of the judge's house sounds out across the countryside, a startled, huddled crowd assembles, led by an anxious Mrs. Dempster. Lights and torches appear, hurrying over the fields and through the desolate parkland. The bell still clangs as the white-faced helpers force their way into the great dark house and move, terror-stricken, into the dining room. As they crowd in the doorway, wide-eyed and silent, they see why the bell is sounding. Swaying slowly back and forth at the rope's end is the twisted body of the young student. On the face of the judge in the portrait beside him is a smile of dark, malignant triumph. And now, sadly, it's time to bid you au revoir as I return once more to the depths of Broadcasting House.
Thank you for sharing my 13 stories. And a big thank you, of course, this week to David Timpson, who played the unfortunate Malcolmson, Tessa Worsley, who was Mrs. Dempster, and Norman Bird, who played the part of Conford. The story was written by Bram Stoker, adapted by John Keircross, and directed by Jerry Jones. My name is Edward de Souza, your man in black. Bidding you au revoir. That's our show for this evening. I want to thank everyone for listening. And remember, if you want to find me on social media, you can check me out on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror1970. Or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. Again, this is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd. Signing off.